great moment. Isn't it good to be in God's house or in your home, those of you watching online, and be able to have a moment where you encounter God's presence? Isn't that good? So if you've never had that or sensed that, that's something all of us need every day, not just on Sundays. We need God's presence, and we need him in our lives. Now, some of you are automatically distracted, so stop looking at my cup and judging me for my team. How many of you have already done that? Be honest. Okay, you didn't. Okay, good. Uh, Yeah, the Green Bay fan did. Of course you did. So, hey, we're going to do a little one-up message. And, you know, I was looking around what's going on in our our world today, especially in our world in America. And I thought one of the things that might be helpful for us is to talk about the concept of conflict. And when we think about conflict, it's something a lot of us don't enjoy. It's not something a lot of us appreciate. It's not something usually people go into going, wow, conflict. I love conflict. Let's, you know, let's do that. But I think when you look, what you're going to discover is it's one of the things that happens very often in our lives. And the conflict can be from within, it can be outside, but the reality is is that conflict is something we all have to square with and we have to deal with. And if I were to have to say, when I look at our nation and I look at the things around us, we're not handling conflict very well. And so maybe one of the things we need to talk about is how to do that. So let me give you three dynamics of conflict of how typical people will handle it. Uh, This is from a psychologist who also um, happens to have a couple different degrees. And they said, when you look at conflict, one of the ways that conflict can arise is within yourself. When your values are not aligned with your actions, that that can actually produce internal conflict for anybody, especially Christians, I think. When your values and perspectives are threatened, so when you hold deep-seated values, they're like deep-seated, they're things that you really trust, or things that are really important to you, and then you feel or you sense, whether it's real or not, that that is threatened, it's one of the ways that conflict can arise. And when there's just discomfort or free, from fear of an unknown or lack of fulfillment, like when change happens, conflict can be a natural component to this. You know, when I began to think about this, I thought back when I was a chaplain, down at Atlantic General Hospital, and I remember beginning to have a conversation back in 2016. You can probably imagine what the conversation surrounded in 016. But one of the things that amazed me was I was talking to a younger person about the certain situation, about the election that was coming. That wasn't that long ago, right? And I thought we could have a civil discussion, a civil discourse between two people who had two different ideologies around what was important to them in an election, Without tipping my hand to you to which side I was on or they were on, which I don't think was important, the conflict was important. And what I immediately realized is while I wanted to have a conversation and actually learn about why that person thought the way they did, how they arrived there, they just dug their heels in deeper. Have you experienced this? Maybe socially, maybe online, maybe through social media, maybe in person, maybe at work. And we don't tend to deal with it well. In fact, some of the phrases that used to be a part of our culture you don't even, you hear them, but they're not used very much anymore. Let me give you a couple and see if you can finish them. One would be, hey, let's just agree to disagree. You got that one online too, right? Let's agree. Yeah, we say that, but do we mean it? Usually it's let's agree to be disagreeable is really what's happening in our lives, right? And then disagree without becoming disagreeable. Have you ever heard that? You can disagree with someone without becoming like disagreeable with them. We've lost that ability to disagree without becoming disagreeable. And it's because we're a very divided people. One of the things I did at 10 o'clock this morning, if you have the app, those of you online, those of you here, I sent you out a poll. You may not have filled it out yet, but some of you have. And the poll came through a push, push notification. And so if you have the app, some of you were able to do that. And I'm just looking at the response. Here was the poll that was sent out this morning. Would you agree or disagree that social media changes how we treat 
one another. Yep, y'all are on it. In fact, look, up, up, some of you are responding right now. It must be the online folks, right? You're all, <laughs> boom, 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 boom. Okay, so um, 100% agree. And yet, let me ask you a question. Where do the majority of us get our information regarding truth and what we think is happening in this world? We get it through social media, don't we? And so when we look at that, um, it begins to skew our perspective. Let me give you a couple other things. Just researching this idea of conflict. Some of these may freak you out. They freaked me out. Did you know that when Congress was polled, they asked them what their faith was, and they had every different type of faith they could actually respond. 88% of your Congress people, women and men, responded that they're Christian. 88% responded Christian. So maybe some definitions of a Christian aren't the same across our nation. In fact, I think when we look at this, only 65% of people in the U.S. identify as Christian, yet 88% in our own legislative branch say they're Christian. But a lot of us would say, well, where's it lining up? There's a disconnect. Now, before we point the finger at them, let me, let me ask you to think about this. Is there a disconnect between the way you and I and most Christians handle conflict? And do we handle conflict more like the world or more like the way Jesus handled it? And when we begin to look at this, I think it's going to really hit home for a lot of us. Because I think what we're going to learn is we handle conflict based on really the way we were raised, really the way it was taught to us, and we don't understand it. So let's look at this, and I think the best way to understand it is look at the way the world handles conflict first, and I think you may identify with some of these things that are very worldly regarding conflict. The first thing is this. The world, when it deals with conflict, exits. The world exits. In other words, they split. They take off. They avoid. They get out of the way. Some of them just said, put, you know, put, bury your head in the sand. This is one of the ways that many people in this world handle conflict. One of the reasons why we run, one of the reasons why we avoid conflict is sometimes we're just emotionally spent. You've been there like, I'm not putting any energy into this thing again, right? You're just spent. Sometimes we see no possibility of resolve or compromise. You're like, what's the point, right? That's another reason why we just run from conflict. We assume things about other people without really knowing them. Uh, Brent and I were talking about this. We were talking about social media. Y'all met Brent. He's running the board right now on AV on the downstairs, not the upstairs. So you can turn around and look at him, stare him. It's okay. And uh, if you're here, if you're not online, just look him up on social media because I'm going to get you off that later. But uh, Brent said, hey, a lot of what I think happens in conflict, and I think he's right, is people make an assumption about a person based on what they post online. So we assume a lot of things about people, and then we assume that we're like, what's the point? I'm not even going to engage in this. And we just avoid, and that's what happens. Avoiding does not help conflict. Uh, one of the most important marriages in my life that I got to watch close up, I won't tell you who because that would be not appropriate, but I think the illustration is so important I need to share it, was a couple who one was the overbearing, like going to deal with it. We're not leaving here until we, we you know, have this fight and we get it all done. You know that personality? And the other one was like, heck no, I'll go find a place to hide, whether that's at church right? Or for some of you, it's the fire department or wherever it is, you find the place to hide. And what happened over time in this marriage is the one kept pressing harder to deal with the conflict and the other one kept running. And what do you think happened? It ended in divorce. That's what happens. The relationship gets sacrificed because we don't know how to handle conflict well. The second thing that happens in conflict the world's way is it escalates, right? You've seen this recently. Conflict, typically based on the world's way of doing things, it escalates. 
We push harder into our emotional investment into whatever the issue is. You know, we want to scream the other person into silence. Have you seen that? If the loudest voice wins, and we'll just scream the other person into silence. You know, when I look at what happened recently on Facebook, right after what happened in our capital, it was interesting to me to watch what some of you and some of the people in our nation posted. Instead of trying to understand the situation, instead of trying to get your mind around it, instead of asking what led us to this place, some of you did that, but a lot of you just dug in your heels and made your voice louder with the group that most agreed with you already. That's how we deal with conflict. And then what happens is when we dig in our heels and then we escalate the conflict, it just gets worse. Most of us, when we look at our conflict and what we draw our truth from, it's based on ideology, Right? a political movement, or maybe even a philosophy. But how many of us can say that how we're going to handle conflicts based on the Bible and based on what Jesus shares about the Bible? Um, you know, during uh, breaks, you know, we get to have those nice breaks where there are weekend breaks or there are holiday breaks, right? And uh, you get to watch a couple movies, right? We were looking for a movie to watch, my family and I, recently. We came across this movie called The War with Grandpa. Has anybody seen it? The premise of the, premise of the movie is that grandpa's getting older. Grandpa can't handle being on his own. He's already um, almost got arrested for shoplifting because he couldn't figure out how to check himself out. He uh, ran over a couple things in the car, and the daughter says, why don't you, he says, you're not putting me in a home. That was a fight really happy. He says, but what if you move into our home? And so grandpa moves in with the family, but the only place to put him is actually in the oldest son's room. And the oldest son declares a war on grandpa. And grandpa reciprocates the war. He's like, I lived through World War II. Let's see what you got, right? And they just, the whole movie is kind of humorous about how the two of them just keep trying to get back at each other. And it's funny, but there's such a good moral story at the heart of it. Because in the end, their family ends up paying all the collateral damage based on this little feud, this little war between grandpa and grandson. And it's because we don't know how to handle conflict. And it just keeps escalating as we dig in our heels. And you see this in this movie so well. So the world exits, the world escalates, and the world um, excoriates. There's a new word for you. I'll we'll leave that up a little longer. Okay, I had to have an E. Okay, sorry. But excoriates is a cool word. You get to learn a new word. What you're really going to like about this word is what it really means at the heart of it. This is what the world does. This word means to censure or to cancel. To censure or to cancel. That's what excoriate means. And recently within our culture, instead of understanding one another, trying to understand and love one another, trying to figure out which, you know, where someone's coming from and why, we just want to cancel them, remove their ability to do anything. You see this new reality in our language, and one of the things that's a new term in our language is something called the cancel culture, right? You may have seen this, whether it's on the news or it's on a blog or it's in your social media. You saw this recently when President Trump got canceled on his Twitter account. That's called cancer culture. We used to have this thing called freedom of speech in the nation, which means we believed all of you were smart enough to know when someone's a stupid idiot, right? So when someone says something like, go storm down the Capitol and take it out, intelligent people go, I don't think that's a good idea. That's not hard to figure out, is it? But we would let the person say it because we had this thing called freedom of speech. But in the culture we have today, we have to cancel the person. This is not new, by the way, before we get all high and mighty and point to one side of the argument. We used to do cancel culture on other cultures that we didn't seem to deem to be more of value. Remember the civil rights movement? Cancel culture was happening back then. And when certain people would say certain things that rubbed the nation the wrong way, 
we said, let's just remove their voice. Let's remove their ability to speak. And that would happen back then. Martin Luther King went through that as he was trying to lead the civil rights movement. Is it the right approach? No. It wasn't the right approach then, and it's not the right approach now. We shouldn't cancel someone's voice. We should understand where they're coming from and be able to figure out. If you think that's something that's just far removed from you, right in our own church, someone started a business years ago called Give, Send, Go, which is to help people raise money for Christian causes. And that business has started right here from a member of our own church, which is trying to help people raise money for different issues. It's trying to be canceled now by PayPal and Visa and different banks because they don't agree with some of the things that are going on. There's a history of this. And when we look at this, it's not the right thing to do. In fact, let me ask you a really interesting question that I pondered before we get into our passage this morning. What if Jesus would have dealt with conflict the way the world does? Ponder this for a second. What if instead of engaging, he exited? What if he pulled away from the issue of sin, the issues around him, and never confronted them? You never heard of him. What if he would have chosen to escalate the situation with the Roman occupation? What would have happened? We have never had a savior. We would have just had a martyr. What would have happened if he excoriated, if he tried to cancel the people that didn't agree with him or screamed louder that his voice would be known? We would not know him the way we know him, and he would not have impacted our world the way it's been impacted. So the way that we handle culture is very important. As Christians, so if you're not a Christian, you're listening from the outside, Christians handle conflict based on Matthew 18. And we're gonna, that's what we're going to look at. So if you've got a Bible, you can open up to Matthew 18. If you've got a, um, your notes, you can pull those up also. But when we look at this, there are transfer principles, not just for Christians, but for everybody. But you need to know that this passage was written for the faithful. That's who this was written for. But there are transferable principles to the whole of humanity. So let's look at this passage together. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Just going to look at a few short verses. I'm going to read out the New Living Translation because it does a really good job of bringing it into the contemporary world. 15 says, If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you've won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again, so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. That comes out of Deuteronomy. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or corrupt tax collector. So I've known this passage a long time. We teach about this passage and we teach about conflict in our very first class that people take called Gathering with Grace. But when I look at it, there's some things that are really we can pull out, not only for us as Christians, but how we deal with the world. And it's by looking at how Jesus talks about conflict. So Christ says where the world exits, we should engage. We should run to the conflict. Christ ran to conflict. He engages with it. What happens when we exit is it festers, it stews, and it eventually explodes or implodes. You've probably experienced that. This is what happens when we see people that loot or riot. It's festered. We isolate ourselves instead of looking for what's behind it. And here's the part that's going to be really hard if you're a Christian. Behind all of those things at the very root is sin. It's the idea that I'm owed something or entitled to something from whatever side of the paradigm you land on. And when you begin to look for the root of sin, then you begin to understand how to deal with conflict and what Jesus means when he talks about engaging it. 
So if sin's at the root, think about this. We who are sinners or who have sinned and understand that we are sinners and have been saved should have incredible compassion and long-suffering for those who aren't there yet. One of the things I love in recovery, for those of you that are in recovery, you're doing the 12 steps, is you're going to come to a really cool step in the fourth week, or the, not the fourth week, but the fourth step, where you have to do what's called a moral inventory. In a moral inventory, you're going to look at how you have sinned and how others have sinned against you and the harm that it's done to you. And then what you have to do is you have to restore that as the next step without doing harm to the other person. And when you think about what Jesus is saying here, let me give them to you. It's one-on-one with consensus with the church and then treat as an unbeliever. That's the four things he's talking about. Well, when you restore a brother or sister, it's one-on-one, especially if it's been a sin to you or you've sinned against them. That's your first step. We're talking about those inside the church. A buddy of mine was about to walk through leaving his wife. There's a lot that was going through it. And I remember I had lunch with him. I went one-on-one with him. Because this is a friend, and I realized what he was about to do by leaving his wife without really grounded reasons was a sin. It was wrong. I didn't shout it to the world. I didn't post it on social media. We didn't have social media back then. But we went one-on-one, had lunch. And I remember he said, I know you're just going to tell me it's a sin. It's no big deal. And, and, or, you know, it's a big deal, and I should not do this. And I said, that's not what I came to tell you. He said, no. I said, no, you already know that. I want to tell you about the collateral damage you're about to do to your children and your family. As a son who comes from divorce, I want to tell you personally how much it hurts and how it changes your life forever. That's the decision you're about to make. And so I want you to be able to think about this. And my heart behind it was not to condemn him, but to restore him to hope. If that person doesn't listen, that's when it says, then you bring accountability. This is why it's so important for you to be in a group, a Bible study. Because then when someone starts to go off the rails, and it's not just one of you, you start with one-on-one, then you can bring the group. And you can, so it's not overwhelming. Say, listen, there's a consensus. We've looked at this scripture. We've looked at this biblically. We've looked at God's word. And what you're about to do is harmful to you and harmful to others. That's why it says, then maybe they'll listen. And if that doesn't happen, it says, then bring it to the church because it's a, it's a big deal. Because the church is Jesus' bride. It's his presence on earth to try to restore the person. Then it says, and then if they still don't listen, then you should treat them that way. Had a friend who was dealing with a situation in the church. It was a confrontation situation. She didn't want to confront. She was concerned about confronting. She left it. It festered. It stewed. It went for months and months and months, and then she never confronted. And now she has to live within that church Every single day, every single week that she attends with that conflict still sitting way back here because she hasn't followed the biblical model for confrontation that Jesus gave. It's so important. Now, when he says to treat them the way you would treat a tax collector or a pagan, I need you to understand that that has some really interesting implications that we're going to get to, that we're going to get to. Now, I want to make this very personal for you and I. So this means when you engage people, when you engage people in a matter of conflict, the wrong way to do it is through social media. Social media is not personal. I don't know if you've got that yet, okay? That's public. It's a broadcast. It's using, it's going backwards in the process. So when you think that you're going to deal with the situation, here's the better thing you could do. Pick up the phone and call. Make a personal contact. Have lunch together. 
things would never escalate if they were actually engaged in this way. So let me ask you a quick question as you think about this and you ponder this. When's the last time you sat down with someone who thinks differently than you, maybe believes differently than you, or sits on the opposite side of the political spectrum than you in an effort to talk to them about a difference of opinion? We don't do that today, and that's one of the things that's missing. We don't engage. So where the world escalates, God implores us. Jesus implores us. Now, I put this word so specific in here because I know I've got some spelling Nazis. Where are you? I know some of you are online, and uh, I know you're there. And you're going, that's spelled wrong, right? You're already there, right? It's supposed to be I-M-P-O. Well, you're, you're right and you're wrong. I did this just to mess with you. because I, I love you people, you spelling Nazis, because you give me stuff every week about stuff I mess up on the outline, right? Well, this, the spelling was changed in 1913. 19th, so I'm going with the old spelling because it fits my outline. E, okay, implores, okay? And the spelling Nazis, you can go look it up. It's right, 1913, this actually becomes the old spelling. But the idea of imploring someone is to move them in a different direction. Instead of escalating the situation, it's to implore, it, it's to beg, it's to understand what's at stake in their relationship with God and their relationship with you. At the heart of imploring someone is to ask what your motive is. Is your motive to be self-righteous? Is your motive to just point out fault? Is your moment to vent on them about a frustration? Or is your motive that they would have the relationship stored completely with God and with you? Because that's the only motive of why you can implore or beg someone to move in a different direction. So when you work with this brother or sister and you're talking about this, again, you come to them one-on-one to implore first. Then you have to find consensus. That's the two or three. This is where this becomes important. If it's a brother or sister in Christ, you can use the word of God to get to consensus. If it's not, it's going to be a more difficult confrontation. Let me give you a story of a gentleman that went through this process within the church that was confronted. Okay, so this person came And I'm just going to give you their ideology. Their ideology was that abortion was okay. That's where they were when they first came to the church. And they met Jesus one-on-one because someone, instead of wanting to argue with them about their ideology, their philosophy, or what their political agenda was, was more concerned with introducing them to the Jesus that they knew. So this person one-on-one comes to know Christ and of course, the Bible says that when that happens, if you've been reading the devotion, right, it says that our heart is changed. The heart of stone is removed. The heart of flesh is put in. And we have this tender heart, which is now malleable that God can begin to change the Holy Spirit. This person knew that they needed to work through recovery, so they started in recovery. As they worked through the recovery process, which is a great discipleship process, they began to know more about how Jesus wanted them to deal with difficult situations in their life. And they became more tender. And then after that, this person became a leader within that recovery process and wanted to grow more. So they began to attend some Bible classes that we were teaching at the time. And I happened to be teaching a New Testament survey. And this person attended that class. And it amazed me within the course of a year and a half in the the fellowship of God's church how they had changed their opinion about that issue. And no longer believed that abortion was okay because it was the taking of a life that was brought at conception. Now, if they would have been confronted on that issue initially and escalated, they would have never come to know Jesus, I think. This is why we start with the one-on-one relationship with Jesus, and you build from that place. This person became such a powerful person in the church 
with regard to helping people know Jesus, on their deathbed, they still had men, this person still had men coming to their deathbed, and they were still discipling them in the process of recovery so they could experience all that Christ wanted for them. That's a big change in a person. But it became as possible because they were implored, they were begged to come to faith first, genuine, transformational faith. It starts with the heart. This is biblical. It's the concept of what's called reconciliation. If you've got a Bible, look at 2 Corinthians 5.20. Um, I just reference it. You can put it down in your notes. But listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.20 when the Apostle Paul's dealing with this issue. He says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. That's you and I if you call yourself a Christian. As though God were making his appeal through us. He's making his appeal to the world through you. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled with Christ, with God. Be reconciled with God. So he's saying this is the mission of the church, to implore people first to come to faith. It's huge. It's necessary. It's important. And where the world excoriates, Jesus exonerates. Where the world wants to cancel, where the world wants to condemn, where the world wants to take away your very power, Jesus says, no, let me bring you to exoneration. Regardless of the outcome, he desired that people come to know the fullness of the gospel, the forgiveness that God had sent him. Think about this. What's behind our motive many times in canceling someone? You ever thought about that? Why do I want to cancel that person, cancel their influence, cancel their voice? Behind that, here's what we're saying as a culture. I want them to pay. Have you felt that? I want them to pay. I want justice. Now, that might work for the world, but it doesn't work for Jesus. Why? Because he already made the payment. Can you imagine the insult to him when you say you pay, but he's already paid? Can you imagine the insult to him when he say they, there needs to be justice, and he says, I've already justified them? See, his view is very different when you look at Luke 23 34, and he's on the cross, and he's being crucified, and this mo- the most vicious and malicious thing that can be done to a person's happening, and he looks at them, and he says, Father, he looks to God, he says, Father, what does he say? Forgive them. For they know not what they do. That's an exoneration. He has a very different view when it comes to people. We had a girl that began to uh, be invited to the church uh, a few Christmases ago. And uh, she found herself fairly far from God. And uh, one of the areas that she found herself far from God on was the area of sexuality. That's another hot topic in our culture, is it not? And uh, the person who brought her had the right heart. They were working with her at a convenience store and said, I just wanted to know the Jesus that I know because he's radically changed my life. And I want this person also to know that forgiveness, that love, that compassion. And Christmas Eve a few years ago, she prayed with me to receive Christ. And, of course, it was a genuine prayer because that's between you and God. And when that prayer happened, her heart was opened up. The heart of stone was removed and a heart of flesh was placed there. And the process of change began. She was scared of baptism, so we met and talked about baptism And here was her question that she was worried about, concerned with, working through as she now moved into that tighter fellowship in the church. She says, I heard Christians hate gay people. Is that true? I said, well, I can't speak for all Christians. I've met some, I'm sure, hate a lot of different things. But I can only tell you what the gospel says. And the good news in God's word says this. He loves people, loves them so much he gave his one and only son for them. His word also says when it comes to marriage, he has this beautiful 
and wonderful standard of one man with one woman for a lifetime. That's his standard because he knows inside of that union is the perfect picture of who God is. So he doesn't want us to distort that picture, but you need to understand at the same time, he loves people. And she goes, I've never heard it that way. I said, because most Christians just get on there and put their opinion without really focusing on the gospel. She goes, well, I'm ready to be baptized. I said, good. She had been struggling with sexuality in both directions. And she says, funny, she goes, after I prayed with you, she goes, I, my boyfriend and I really hit it off and we've been moving forward in a relationship and I haven't had those other desires for the same sex. Begin with the gospel. Understand that Christ exonerates. This is his heart. This is what he wants. Bring them into fellowship. In fact, I would say to you, and this is an interesting dynamic, when you look at his model for confrontation for Christians, right? It's one-on-one with consensus to the church. Treat him as an unbeliever, right? I would submit to you, flip the paradigm over when you're dealing with someone who's not in the church. You ever thought about that? Because Jesus was specifically talking about people in the church in this passage. But flip, the, flip it over, and I'll give you an example. Matthew, the tax collector, he wrote this passage. And he says, treat him like a tax collector. Well, how was he treated? The culture scorned him, canceled him, hated him, didn't want anything to do with him. And then Jesus one day was coming down near him and said, I want a relationship with this guy. And he began to engage him with the gospel. So when you treat people as an unbeliever or a tax collector, here's what I think is at the heart of this. The only concern you have is not argument over philosophy or ideology. It's do you know the Christ that I know? That's, the, that's, that's what it really means to treat people as a tax collector or as a pagan. This is the only conversation that ultimately matters. Then, once that is settled, right, one way or the other, then you move them into the church, into that fellowship. And then from that fellowship into a tighter fellowship of accountability. And from that to even one-on-one where they can really grow where they can deal with the tough stuff happening in this world. And when you and I think about the tough topics of our day, the current election, the current political situation, racism, sexuality, we should be thinking over this the whole time, Christ's model of confrontation. Because if we do, you will change the world one life at a time. And it won't be by winning someone based on an argument. It'll be because their heart changes. You've heard this phrase, right? People don't care what you know till they know that you care. That's what the gospel is. What's happening today, I think, has been fueled, and I think you all agree, by social media and our response to social media. So one of the things that we can tangibly do this week, if we really want to see conflict and resolve conflict happen in our life, is fast social media. That's what I'm asking you to do this week. I'm going to ask you to fast. Now, if you don't know what a fast is, A fast is something that people do spiritually where they say, I'm giving something up for a specific season so I can experience God in a fuller way. Sometimes that's done through food because you're proving to your body that it doesn't need food. It needs more of the spiritual bread of God, right? The word of God more than anything. Sometimes you do it with other things. And I think what would happen in just our church, our gathering online here, If starting Monday, I'm giving you today, okay, don't freak out. Starting Monday, get your addiction in, okay, today, until Saturday, you got off social media. Would your perspective change? Would your love for other people change? Would you be more at peace or less at peace? And there's only one way to know. 
is to actually take the challenge. So instead of calling, or instead of posting, you call. Instead of blaming, you pray for that person. Instead of fuming, you fast. So this is why I'm asking you to do this. So if you're willing to do that on your Connect card, would you let me know? Fasting with you, Monday through Saturday. No social media. How would you do that? It's pretty simple. You just put on your social media page or whatever the four or five you have. I will not be available on this platform from Monday to Saturday. If you need me, call me, email me. Give them a different way of contacting you. And I wonder just one week how your life will change. And let me ask you a question that's really, really, really nasty. If you're the person sitting there right now and you go, I just can't do that then what does that say about the power of social media over your life? The point of fasting is to prove that God is the one who ultimately has the power and the control over the most important areas of our life. So will you do that? And then last week I asked you, who's your one that you've been praying for? And I told you I prayed for one person that I know that in this season needs to know Jesus, know the gospel, and God gave me two. And so I've been working on that. I need you to pray for that person. And one of the things you can do instead of being on social media this week is increase your prayer life over that person that you said God needs to reveal himself to this person and their heart needs to be open. So on your Connect card that you've got there, on your Connect card online, do me a favor. Just say, hey, I'm fasting with you. Fasting. That way I can do to pray. And then if you know the name of the person that you've been praying for, put their first name. So you don't have to give me their whole name. I'm not going like, to like, you know, go stalking them. Just give me their first name so I can pray with you about that person. I've been doing that for each of you that have been listening to that. Because I believe that as we pray for people, God's going to do some cool things in their life. Amen? And he's definitely teaching us, I think, as a church, how to better deal with conflict. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the words of Jesus regarding conflict. Father, too often we've dealt with conflict based on the world's way of thinking or maybe the way we were raised, watching our parents with siblings. God, maybe even through certain groups that we've been a part of that are outside the church. That's how we've learned about how to deal with conflict. But Lord, this day, we want to change the way we deal with conflict. Specifically by removing ourselves from something that's a negative influence on us regarding conflict, which is social media. And then pressing in hard this week to your word and to praying for those that are tax collectors in our world, that are pagans in our world, people that don't know you and are far from you. And we don't pray, Lord, for them with an air of superiority, but we pray because we have been changed. Instead of looking at our sin, You looked at us as valuable, redeemable. God, let us look at the rest of the world the same way to exonerate them, that they might experience what you've done and your full forgiveness when you died on the cross. Father, thank you for the lives that will be changed this week as we fast and we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.